it is. I, I go back to that book and Guy Kawasaki saying, make meaning. And uh, it wasn't about make money. And you got to believe that if you do the right thing, the money will follow. It is about making meaning. And, you know, maybe it's just about telling yourself a story of why you're doing what you're doing. But uh, there really feels like there is a mission and a purpose to uh, what I have done. And that's probably the thread in this. That's Andy Levitt, CEO of Brightly. Andy retraces his career journey on this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Andy walks us down his leadership path from selling t-shirts in college to a career in the pharmaceutical industry to founding three successful startups, including the vegan meal kit company Purple Carrot and his new company Brightly, which creates value at the intersection of food recovery and climate change. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron. Brendan Schneider and I learned a lot, and we know you will too. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. Yeah, and welcome to Leadership Backstory. So, Brendan, we have Andy Levitt on the podcast. Hey, Andy, it's good to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Andy has a, Brendan, he's got a fascinating background. We're going to get into all of it. A little preview. You used to be a customer of his when at a, a, at a company that he ran. Um, Correct. But today, yeah. he, he, he runs Brightly Ventures. And Andy and I had a chance to talk about it. Fascinating company about we'll get into all of this stuff. Like, I think I, I will not do it justice the way Andy will, but Andy, thanks again. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started about where, where would you like to start your backstory? And you started to tee up a story about selling t-shirts in colleges. And then Brendan's like, stop, I want to hear it. So <laughs> I want to hear it live. So like, yeah, let's, let's start the journey there. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, uh, you know, you guys were kind to, to prompt me with a couple of questions to think about ahead of this discussion. And, you know, sort of think about where my journey began. And I really do think of myself as an entrepreneur. I will be 53 in August of this year, 2023. And, you know, I, I really think of myself as an entrepreneur. I love to create something from nothing. It's my, my biggest professional joy. And in thinking about where that started, it probably began. And I remember sitting in a political science class as a freshman at Emory University back in 1988. And I was thinking about the Grateful Dead, and I was going to see uh, a set of concerts in Atlanta later that year. And I started doodling a T-shirt, and I decided to just go and produce and you know print a whole bunch of T-shirts ahead of this concert. And in my first day of that of that three day show in Atlanta, I sold out like within an hour, and I was like, I think I'm onto something here. And then I started. I printed you know an overnight run of more shirts for the next night's show, and printed, you know, sold more of that coming summer. And I started to find joy in this idea of being an entrepreneur, of being, you know, responsible for how I could generate revenue. And, uh, I started to scale that t-shirt business over the next year. I uh, started selling them wholesale around the country only to then one day open up my college mailbox with a letter from a place called, uh, legally dead. And it had this cool embossed, uh, you know, icon on the, on the letter. And I was so excited. Like maybe this was one of those companies that I sent my t-shirt out to sell wholesale. But in fact, it was actually the, the law firm that represented the Grateful Dead sending me a cease and desist letter for selling t-shirts that had copyrighted icons, you know, dancing bear lyrics, um, and told me to report all profits and immediately shut down my operations. So that caused me a moment of panic, of course. And I called my dad and said, Oh my God, wait, I got this letter all of 18 or 19 years old. And 
So I sort of stopped selling Grateful Dead t-shirts, um, but I started my own t-shirt business in college as a sophomore. And for the next three years, I really hustled um, and grew a pretty big business of selling t-shirts to fraternities and sororities and other campus groups. And I did that while being a student in college and having a social life and you know academics. And it sort of showed me like, this is so much fun to just be an entrepreneur, be in business, make stuff happen when other, pe other people may have just been using their time differently. I loved how I was applying my time and it was a great education. It was a great way to earn some revenue. And I think it sort of started those seeds of being an entrepreneur at a relatively early age. So did you have like a, a, a press? Like, were you pressing the shirts yourself? Like, how did that all work? I was thinking yeah. that too. I, you know, I had a summer job between, I think it was my freshman and sophomore year, maybe it was my sophomore, junior year, um, where I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and I got laid off that summer because the economy was sort of stalling out. But um, I never really got into the the physical production side of it. It was more just the business building side of creating relationships with, in college then, it was the fraternity and sorority leads um, and social groups who would then hire me to work with them to design a concept. And I found a great artist and printer who would produce that. And I was essentially just the middle person that was taking the load off of the social coordinator of those Greek organizations, producing the shirts and then making a margin in between. Hmm. Um, and that was, you know, some of the, I did for three of those last four years of school. That was, um, it was a really fun educational experience and put some, you know, beer money in my pocket. <laughs> And, and what did you do with the letter? Do you still have it? Yeah. I was... So I still have the letter and I have, I think, two of the t-shirts remaining. Um, wow. Ironically are lyrics from a song called Terrapin Station, yeah. which is ironic because the name of my new company, which maybe we'll talk about later on, is called Brightly, is a lyric that comes from that same song, Terrapin Station. So, wow. Oh, very really nice. To have it all together. That is so awesome. Were, were you in school for business or finance or entrepreneurship? So I was an art history major in college at Emory, and I chose art history because I thought it was going to help me differentiate myself from a sea of political science majors and other you know, general economics or you know, business majors, that I was going to be this guy with a business background, but with an art history degree. And I had Throughout college, I had internships and different jobs at companies in addition to my own t-shirt company. Um, but when I got out of college and I was looking for jobs, applying as a um, an art history major got me no interviews at you know, the Gamble's the world and other co corporations I might have uh, been seeking. So I started a business out of college with a buddy of mine who was still in school, and we created a, a discount card uh program for college students. It was called the U-Card. Uh, and I spent many days and nights in his parents' basement uh, in a place called Norcross, Georgia, which um, with all due respect, once you're out of Atlanta, you are in Georgia. And that was part of Georgia. And uh, after doing that business for a while, and I remember saying to him one night, like, oh yeah, we might could do that. And that sounded normal to me. And I realized, okay, it's time to leave Atlanta. And uh <laughs> Uh, that was just a side business out of college, but it was, um, I ended up getting a, a master's, uh, part-time at NYU, um, several years later. Uh, but, um, that was probably my most formal training was just, you know, going and jumping right into it and figuring it out. So clearly the seeds were, you know, it's the seeds were, were, were there during your college years. Like what happened after that? Did you 
go work for a big corporation or did you just, did you keep building businesses? So I ended up, I left that um, discount card program and I went, I um, got a job. I really was just barely making ends meet with that and um, ended up getting hired by a guy um, named Andy Klein to go work for him as his right-hand person in New York City selling beer. And it was a microbrewed beer. It was called Wit Beer. And it was, this is, brings us back to like um, this February of 1994 or so. Um, and, you know, microbeers were like coming onto the scene. They were hip. And this guy, Andy, had started a microbrewery of his own. And so he said, you know, come learn from me. You're clearly an entrepreneur. Why don't you come and join me in New York? And uh, I just said that Mike could comment. And I thought, okay, this is all lining up. Well, I'll, I'll leave and head north. And, um, so I worked for him for about six months and I, I hated it. Um, I was, it just wasn't my thing to be out there pounding the streets of New York city, selling my group beer. And then, uh, entered into a new phase of my career in the pharmaceutical sector. And that was a really formative set of years, uh, where I was able to get a job as a sales representative for a uh, pharmaceutical company called Shearing Plow. And it was an extremely entrepreneurial environment where again, fall of 1994, I was given a company car. I was given a laptop. I had all this data about the doctors that I was calling upon promoting prescription products. Uh, and I had my own territory of doctors and it was up to me to decide how often I called on those doctors, what I was saying to them within reason, uh, and how I was going to go about my time to generate uh, increase in prescriptions for particular products. And, um, I loved it. It was a, it was a really nice blend of working for a corporation but also having a lot of entrepreneurial resources uh, and, and approaches uh, to what I was doing. So I did that for about two and a half years and was very successful as a sales rep. Uh, I was like the number three rep out of about 200 reps in the country. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to get selected to move into the corporate office uh, where I went into marketing uh, on the drug Claritin, which at the time was a prescription product. And in February of 1997, uh, when that drug was, when I started in that role, the FDA didn't really allow drug companies to make claims on TV for the ads that, or for what the product was doing. Uh, and it was six months later in August of that year when the FDA changed the regulations. And it was me and one other guy, Troy Cox, who was uh, on the consumer side of marketing the drug Claritin. And it became an incredibly robust and rich time professionally. I was getting my master's uh, at NYU at night during the day, I was in this really exciting role within, in a very entrepreneurial organization, Sharing Plow, with a lifestyle drug that was um, perfectly suited for the launch of direct consumer advertising. And so I was given a probably a disproportionate amount of responsibility to go and execute entrepreneurial organized programs to drive the awareness of that drug. And uh, it was a really fun, exciting time to manage a, a host of, of areas for that drug clarity to promote to consumers. And that sort of led to years within the pharmaceutical sector where I spent roles in sales, marketing, management, and strategy uh, before moving on to Johnson & Johnson, uh, where I played a couple roles. And then uh, my last corporate gig was at a company called Genzyme uh, here in the Boston area, um, where I was director of oncology. And um, I really wasn't loving it. You know, it was a very high science kind of business. And I'm not a high science kind of guy <laughs> and it just wasn't, it, I never really, I felt like a fish out of water there. So, um, I had the great 
good fortune of getting laid off in November of 2006. And I sort of thought to myself, okay, it's, it's me and my dog. I, what am I going to do? I'm going to go scratch that entrepreneurial itch and start a real company again. So um, that led me to starting sort of a proper business called Health Talker, which uh, I launched in February of 2007. Uh, Health Talker was the first of its kind word of mouth marketing company for pharmaceutical companies. So the idea with the business model was that drug companies would hire me and my firm to find folks like us who might suffer from chronic health conditions to talk about the prescription drugs they were taking to treat those chronic health conditions among people who probably have the similar kind of condition on the belief that birds of a feather flock together and that uh, if you have Crohn's disease or you've got allergies or you've got asthma or your kid has ADHD, you're going to know other people in that same vein. And as that health condition may define who you are as a person, you'd be very comfortable talking about it to others who trusted you for your opinion. And I built a business out of that. And it was a great, you know, very, you know, zero cost of goods. And it was really having drug companies create a marketing plan as a novel way to create consumer awareness that 10 years after direct consumer advertising became a thing, you know, it became boring for people to see ads on television about a drug. It might've been novel and I was in the right place at the right time in 1997 with the drug Claritin, but fast forward 10 years, it wasn't that interesting anymore. So I thought that my business health talker became an interesting novel marketing tactic for drug companies. Uh, and after about five and a half years, was able to sell that business uh, before then starting Purple Carrot uh, about a year and a half later, which was the first of its kind 100% plant-based meal kit uh, that was all about uh, sort of vegan food for non-vegans that was intended to help people eat healthfully, help eat plant-based foods for their health and the health of our environment. And There's was... a couple of interesting transitions in there, Andy. Yeah. I mean, wh one of the questions I have all the way back to, you know, when you were marketing Claritin and before, like, were you intentionally building entrepreneurial skills? Like, did you see, you know, starting something again, like you did when you were in college? You know, I think what I found was that I was, um, I was keenly aware of needing to navigate the politics of large corporations. Mm. And my, my dad has always praised me for being able to do that with some level of skill. Um, and realizing that, that. Um, that's just how the game is played in corporate America. And the experience I had working in large corporations as I did was, um, instructive and informative and largely enjoyable. Um, but I also felt like I just, I wanted to do things a different way or I wanted to do things my way. Um, and that in these large organizations, there was just such a chain of commands, um, and that it wasn't necessarily my thing, you know? And so yeah. I learned a lot. I don't know that I was deliberately or with intention saying, I'm going to go be an entrepreneur one day, but I did feel like the, the experiences I was having and the increasing levels of responsibility were going to be valuable and useful sets of experiences for me. But that when I was sort of handed a card or dealt, you know, cards that said, you just got laid off from this job, uh, which I wasn't really that excited about being in anyways it looked to me like the universe was talking and saying, now's your time, go jump and take, take a chance. Yeah. What were the challenges of starting your own business? You know, I had read a book in December of 2006 by Guy Kawasaki that was called Art of the Start. Yeah. And I really recommend that book to entrepreneurs because 
guy uh, who is a former uh, chief evangelist for Apple computers and has gone on to become a very successful venture capitalist of his own, used to focus on uh, writing things as a top 10 list. And the first thing of his 10 things was make meaning. It wasn't make money, it was make meaning. And that has resonated and stayed with me all these years. And the challenge of starting something is just that, it's just starting, is saying, okay, I'm gonna go figure this out, I'm gonna commit to showing up and trying to figure this out every day, you know, drip, 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 and get a little bit better and make some progress. I think a lot of people are afraid to start or don't have the confidence to do it. And I believed in myself and sort of felt like, you know, what's the downside to starting? It was me and my dog. I didn't really have to worry about anybody else at that point. You know, my wife and I now have four kids. And so there's a different dynamic there. But um, back then it, it was really starting. And, but the, I think a big challenge of what I was starting with Health Talker was that no one was doing it. And that was a, a completely novel uh, marketing tactic. And drug companies are inherently risk averse. And so to find product market fit and to get the traction of an initial customer, it took months and months of me, you know, trying to find a path forward until someone said yes to me. Uh, and a guy named Bob Harrell from Shire Pharmaceuticals, and it was on July 11, 2007. I'll never forget the joy that I felt when he said yes to me because it was a confirmation that I was onto something. And that continued to fuel me to continue to go. And then over the next several years, it became... Uh, much easier to sell when I could point to other corporations that had said yes to me. Yeah. What kind of leadership lessons did you learn in that experience? You know, it was largely uh, about surrounding myself with brilliant people. And I knew what my unique ability was in that having been a brand manager for Clarendon, I could get, and I was selling to other brand managers. So I felt like I had walked a mile in their shoes or many miles and I could really relate to the challenges they had, but I could also offer them a, a way to navigate through the limitations that exist within a highly regulated industry and help make their life a bit easier and do something cool that they wanted to do. So it was my unique ability to focus on that part of the business, but then I needed to bring on, you know, other leaders in the technology space or in customer support who could, uh, you know, continue to help grow the business. And so I think I quickly learned lessons that are, are well articulated in a book, uh, by Napoleon Hill called thinking grow rich mm -hmm. that is that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. It's just surrounding yourself with, with really great people. And so I think a leadership lesson there was to, to follow in that role and also to push the edges and go not just fit in, but rather go to the edge to differentiate and be distinguished and be noticeable in an effort to be remarkable and a tip to my friend, Seth Godin, that that's what it was all about. And that if you just did something that was so average, nobody would notice you and it would be very hard to compete. And as a small independent, you know, bootstrapped organization, you had to find a novel way to catch someone's attention. Well, that was going to be the question I asked. I mean, were you funded or does it, was this all bootstrapped? Health Talker was all bootstrapped um, until for a while. And then um, I ended up taking on just a very small amount of capital um, from two angels who had invested in me. That um, there was important capital to have. It fueled a little bit, but the business was very cash flow positive 
uh, once we got underway because of the nature of the business. Uh, so the, it was largely bootstrapped. How was that? How did, how did you scale when you were bootstrapped? Like, like talk about like the first couple of hires, like how did you make that work? Uh, not that well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I remember having to lay off, uh, someone and I, I started crying. I, I felt so ashamed of my inability to create a dynamic that was going to work that I'd brought something in and asked them to work with me, for me, what have you. And, uh, a few months into it, I and I was it was so humbling to sit there and have to say someone you can't work here anymore, and they were fine. I was well and crying, um, but it was uh, you know I don't think you ever get it just right, or it's rare to get it just right out of the gate. And I, I would think about baseball players who might get into the Hall of Fame with a batting average of three fifty or four hundred. That means that you know six out of ten times they're getting out, and they're not getting it right. So. Uh, I think hiring probably follows a similar trajectory in a lot of ways. Um, and so the the first three people that come to my, my mind who worked for me were, you know, didn't last all that long. Um, and I think you're in those early days, you're so excited when someone else that gives you confirmation that your idea makes sense, that they would actually want to go join you, that I think it can sometimes cloud your judgment about who's the right fit and what you need in an organization. Uh, because I think it was it was such an, a novel early concept that when someone said, "Oh, that's cool," it was easier to get your head around bringing them on on your team to help buoy confidence in in days or nights when you're questioning you know, what you're really doing. Um, but it was it was a lot of hustling, and uh, you know you got to have some some good fortune and good luck come your way. And the my first product category was ADHD, and it was. Uh, there was a, a very willing partner on the side of that, and it was an easier topic to discuss. Um, and so that became a, a good liftoff point. Um, and then, you know, the second, I feel like if I remember correctly, the second and third clients took a while, and then things just sort of opened up as it became a bit more um, accepted as a, as a marketing tactic. Did you like that company? Which one? Uh, Health Talker. Did you enjoy that work? Oh, I loved it. I loved mm. it. I mean, I thought it was it was so cool what I was doing, and uh, it was exciting to create something from nothing and do something that nobody else was doing. And uh, I felt like I was actually helping people. You know that that there were people who were confused by drug ads on television, that they didn't understand the fair balance and all the risks and concerns and warnings that the FDA mandates drug companies to publish. Uh, that when you could help people create, give them a sense that they were a part of something larger than themselves was a way to inspire people who had likely chronic health conditions. They could talk about it and feel empowered to do so. Uh, so there was something that was very gratifying at a human level uh, to, to create that and generate positive results for my clients who were paying me to, to do just that. Um, and I remember when I went to sell my company, a, a guy that I know who had his own company said to me, you know, be careful if you sell health talker, because you have to realize this might be the single coolest thing you ever do. <laughs> and I remember that haunted me for a while. Cause I, when I did sell it and I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Did I just give up and sell the best thing that I was ever going to create? And yeah. uh, so I, I really did love it. And, uh, I was happy for what I created, but it was definitely, not going to be the best thing I ever did. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the next thing. I mean, yeah, you were deeply embedded in like the pharmaceutical world for a long time. And now all of a sudden you're, you're like, nope, 
I'm going vegan. I'm gonna I'm gonna like focus on on vegan and vegan lifestyle. How like talk first off, how did that happen? Like what was the transition there? Yeah, it was um, you know, so after I sold Hell Talker, I stayed on for a year um as part of that contract and then uh, chose to leave and I, I did a very short term gig in New York City that was in the um working for an app that didn't really matter or mean much and I, I wasn't that excited about it. And after a couple of months, I realized I got to get back to doing my own thing again and starting my own company. And uh, so at the encouragement of an ethically vegan friend of ours, uh, my friend Corey recommended my wife and I watch a documentary called Forks Over Knives. <clears throat> yeah. And for those people who have not seen it, it's a documentary about two physicians who grow up independently on dairy farms in the Midwest. And they come to the same conclusion that a diet highly characterized by meat and dairy consumption which is the standard American diet, is the cause of most chronic health conditions in this country, and that a plant-based diet is the antidote to that. And it introduced me to this concept of food as medicine instead of drugs as medicine. And for the better part of 20 years of my professional life, I believed that Western medicine was the, you know, had the cure for everything. And this documentary really flipped that on its head. And a good friend of mine, Doug Rothstein, who's a uh, executive recruiter in New York City, he and I had been talking for a few months before that as Blue Apron had come on online maybe six months prior, and he just placed their head of operations, and we were talking about the uh, inner economics of meal kits, and I was starting to learn about meal kits. This is late 20, January of 2014 now, when my wife and I watched the documentary, and the documentary ends, and I turned to my wife and I said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> what are you talking about? I said, I'm going to start a plant-based meal kit because more people need to know about the value of plant-based eating. And it was, I was so inspired by it. And you know, the next day I got online, I tried to find any plant-based meal kit companies. There was none that existed. There were very few in general that existed. <laughs> and I just committed right then and there, I'm gonna go do it. And I came up with the name Purple Carrot, uh, which was inspired by Seth and his writings of a book, among others, called Purple Cow. Yeah, yeah. I remember walking down uh, Park Avenue South one night, trying to think about the name of a vegan meal kit company, what would it be? And I thought about Purple Carrot. I was like, oh, Purple Cow. And I was thinking, Purple Cow, Purple Cow, Purple Carrot. And it just hits me right on a bricks. And, um, uh, you know, knowing far too little about what it would take to create a plant based meal kit company or a meal kit company alone, uh, I just said, I'm going to go figure it out. I'm going to do it. And it was a really uh, exciting professional challenge to figure out how to move from a world of pharmaceuticals into a world of consumer e-commerce. And again, I went to the edge to be vegan. Uh, my early investors said, you should just go vegetarian. That there's so many more people who are vegetarian. I said, you're missing the point. It's you got to go to the edge. And that's where vegan is going to be interesting. And it was vegan food for non-vegans because that was what the market was. And I was betting that meal kits would be a thing and that plant-based was going to be a thing. And uh, those both seem to be a thing. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's a it's a thing. Yeah, for sure. So uh, tough, tough business, but it was it was amazingly fun and felt very mission aligned and purposeful, um, but not not easy to run. And I felt very fortunate to have the outcomes that I had. Uh, so, how do you start a plant based you know yeah meal kit company? Like, how does that? I can't even get my head around that. Yeah, I mean, it was so juvenile in the early days. I mean, I I remember you know. I used to, there was a woman who gave me her cookbook and she allowed me to use all the recipes from her cookbook. It was a vegan cookbook, of course. And um, the meals were terrible and the servings were all about 
I, I, at that time, my wife and I had three kids. And so we, I made these meals for a family that could feed a family and it was two different dinners. And I limited the distribution to the Northeast and mid Atlantic where we could ship or a truck could ship in a matter of two days to any location and needing to figure out box sizes and insulation and gel packs and portioning. And, you know, I used to go to Whole Foods by myself and, and walk in and clear the shelves and I'd buy like, you know, 36 cans of black beans. And they'd be so upset with me that I would go and clear out, you know, their stock of, of things. And uh, I was paying money hand over fist for high quality ingredients and then paying to, you know, get or portion them all down by myself and in a box and ship them out. And it was just, it was very, very low quality, I will say, but it was an MVP and I started. And again, that was right. the thing. Um, was just to get started. And where were you making all this? Yeah, uh, in my house. I mean, the, we were making meat. He was portioning it in my kitchen. Um, my wife and I swept out our garage and moved our two cars out of our two car garage, and that was my 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 place of operations. And the first boxes got picked up by a FedEx truck in October of 2014 in my driveway. And it was, I mean, I'm sure it was illegal. We wore gloves, but I mean, it was <laughs> not, not the most sanitary way to do it. But we were just getting started, and. Uh, I remember I was so excited after this first shipment, we used this um, great salsa. Uh, it was local called Nola's Salsa. And uh, it was in one some dish that we sent out. And I remember after the box got picked up, the next day I got a phone call and it said, hi, is this purple carrot? And I was like, yeah. And I thought it was a customer saying how incredibly excited they were about what I just sent to them. And it was a woman who said, this is FedEx, a box of yours has exploded and it's undeliverable because all the salsa had shattered and, you know, come out and, and I thought this is going to be a hot mess. What did I, what did I get myself to do? Uh, it, it was very challenging and we, we quickly moved out of my garage into a, a proper, uh, sort of proper facility in, in Needham, Massachusetts, uh, where I was living at the time, but it was a bit of remnant space about 3,800 square foot, uh, space. It had no, no, uh, air conditioning and no heat. And so in November, it was okay, but you know, December, January, February, those were very cold months. And I had very little money and had these three tiny space heaters, in the cavernous space that did absolutely nothing. And uh, it was really troubling where my wife was now pregnant with our fourth child. We were burning through cash and I would be there days and nights, you know, whether it's taping boxes or portioning the food into little baggies and uh, I had a small staff, about four or five people, and um, I remember my uh, this woman who was who was doing our finances for us pulled me aside on a Friday and said we need to talk, and it was one of those conversations like can we talk? You know, and I thought she was going to tell me that she had a different job, and instead it was like you've got about eight days left of money before we're out, and you and Tammy, my wife, wow. she goes, you and Tammy might want to talk this weekend about taking like a line of credit or a home equity loan on your home because we're going to be out of cash, you can't raise any more money. And, uh, I, you know, by the grace of God, I was able to raise more capital in a relatively short period of time and things just started to click and it was, I mean, I was really close to the edge. Um, and for the sake of time, I'm, I'm keeping it simple and high level, but it was, there was some, it was a lot of scary moments there in those early days, especially where I thought we run out of money. I was taking a salary. I'd put $125,000 of my own capital in, and I thought this is a horrendous business and we'll never, we'll never get to the other side because it just didn't, I didn't see a path out and, you know, eventually started to get enough traction, enough visibility, 
there's a partnership with a guy named Mark Bittman, uh, who's a New York Times famous author and cookbook writer, you know, food critic, who joined me for just a few months. It didn't work out. Uh, and out of respect, I'll keep it limited to those comments. But uh, he wasn't with me for long, but, but I did use that moment when he joined me in November of 2015, about a year after I started, to expand to the West Coast and also introduce this as a subscription product and to introduce uh, two-person meals because it was only family at that point. And it was family, and it was pay-as-you-go. So it was a transition to now committed to a subscription business. We had now 70% of the country covered. And that was a big moment that put us on the map a bit. And we had to then continue to earn the respect of customers as we did that. Uh, so I made a decision to, to outsource the fulfillment um, because it was not valuable to me in that realm. And I felt like if we could have the best product and the best brand and just focus on customer acquisition and customer retention, we would do okay. And I... Uh, it was very clear to be a mission-driven organization that was focused on people's health and the health of our planet. And that's why I was having a plant-based food that was also very central to the DNA that we were never going to be, we were always going to be plant-based. We weren't going to allow anything else to compromise that. And so we were playing to the edges, but again, trying to be sort of uh, the solution to a much wider audience who realized they should probably incorporate more plant-based foods into their life. And this was the way to do that. And, uh, you know, we just grinded it out and then got some more traction. Meal kits were hot. Plant base was getting hotter. <laughs> the team was expanding. We started to get some more capital in. And, uh, you know, we started to really hit some traction um, and it, it became a thing. It was really started to find our place. Did you like, did the introduction of like the impossible foods, like impossible burger, all this stuff that, that was that like an inflection point for you as, or was there something else? So, you know, the, I think the introduction of Beyond and Impossible were great to raise awareness of plant-based foods. Um, but what started to happen a couple years, in, like, you know, by 2018 or so, uh, the meal kit business started to soften as Instacart uh, and DoorDash, those businesses started to come on board Uber Eats. Um, yeah. And now plant-based was so prominent that restaurants were now offering a lot of plant-based choices. And so now what was a unique differentiator for purple carrot as the plant-based solution now could be found by going to restaurants. You go to Burger King, right. you get an impossible burger at Burger King, think you're a cool eating plant-based versus, you know, kind of the bespoke meals that we were offering. Um, but so there was some challenges with that. Um, there was a, there was no barrier to entry to the meal kit space. So that was a challenge because there were, there were so many choices for consumers. There were no switching costs for consumers who could pop between each meal yeah. kit. And there was sort of a race to the bottom as meal kit companies were, most of them were heavily venture backed and they were discounting every week to try to retain customers and create a habit. We really resisted that, which I think was smart. Um, and we also were distinguished as the only plant-based where there was plenty of other meal kits that offered the same kind of products. So that was helpful. But the, I mean, an inflection point, we did a partnership with Tom Brady. That was a big moment. Uh, we partnered with TB12 um, and we grew there. Uh, there was a couple of documentaries that came out that was very, one was called um, uh, Game Changers. Uh, that was in the fall of 2018 or 2019. Um, and then COVID hit. Uh, I'd sold the business to a Japanese firm uh, called Oisex Radaichi in May of 2019. And uh, we signed on for a three-year earnout. And the business was pretty soft. And we were concerned that it was going to be a very, very challenging relationship. 
Um, but COVID, we became one of the real winners or a winner in the COVID uh, dynamic. And, you know, with full humility to many people who suffered from COVID or restaurants who took it on the chin by no fault of their own, meal kits were a winner. And so Purple Carrot was, you know, after working hard for five or six years to establish trust as a brand, we had the infrastructure to, to level up to the increased amount of demand where our business pretty much doubled overnight uh, as people couldn't go to restaurants, couldn't go to the grocery stores, they were scared and cooking their meals at home gave them a sense of control uh, in an otherwise out of control moment. Yeah, I bet. Uh, it, seems, it seems like a, a logical a logical place for you to land. So you sold Purple Carrot and you were there for three years after and now you're, I mean, I think you had a, did you have a stop in between Purple Carrot and Brightly or was there? Yeah. So, um, so I sold Purple Carrot and exited in, uh, April of 2022. Um, so that was the end of my tenure there after about eight years. Uh, great experience, really proud of, you know, 75 employees and three distribution centers around the country. And, you know, it was substantial. We did over a hundred million dollars in revenue in 2021. So it was a big business. Yeah. Um, but it was time for me to go. I was, I was ready for the next challenge. And, uh, I had a good fortune about a year and a half before I left Purple Carrot to meet a group of incredible individuals at an organization called the FarmLink Project, uh, which was a student founded and student run organization, nonprofit that focused on, uh, helping address the issues of food insecurity, uh, and food waste, uh, especially at the farm level that was trying to address this um, issue where farms were throwing away food at the start of the pandemic as supply chains were backed up. Yet there was these enormously long lines at food banks as people were going hungry. And so they tried to go and solve this. And so I met them about four to six months into their journey and decided to back them as Purple Carrots. They were Purple Carrots' corporate social responsibility partner. And so I picked them, I gave them some money and some mentorship. And when I was leaving Purple Carrot, I reached out to let them know I was doing that. And they said, hey, would you consider joining us? And I said, yeah, that's awesome. I'm really humbled. But um, maybe we could do something in the for-profit space together because that's what I love to do is create something from nothing. And they brought me on as a consultant for six months and it lasted for about eight months. And a lot of the work that I'm now uh, proud about launching with Brightly was incepted uh, out of Farmlink. And it's a great group of people. And uh, I'm able to, there's a couple of people that now came out of Farmlink that are working with me and uh, I'm really excited about the impact that we can have both for FarmLink as an organization, as a nonprofit, and for Brightly and the uh, organizations that we serve and the people who will benefit from our service. Yeah. So tell us about it. I mean, Brendan, it's a, Brightly is a really cool concept. You know, and I, I can't wait to see where you take it, Andy. But like, yeah, walk us through it. Yeah, thanks. So it's the focal point here is, is playing at the intersection of climate change and food insecurity. And so you know, if you think about the arc of my journey, especially through coming out of, of Purple Carrot, where I had this real keen understanding of the role food played in people's lives, I think we all can appreciate how miserable it is to be hungry. And those of us on this call and people who may be listening may be fortunate enough to not be food insecure, to wonder where their next meal is coming from. But there are millions and millions of people who are food insecure. So there are these incredible organizations called food rescue organizations who are out there gathering excess food that may otherwise get thrown away and end up in a landfill. And by rescuing that food, they can provide it to food pantries and give it to people who are experiencing hunger and help them be fed and nourished. But a lot of those food rescue organizations don't get paid for the work that they do, and they rely on 
government grants or corporate donations to sustain their operations. And there are costs to those operations. They are nonprofit and they start at zero every year. Right. So at this moment, there's a methodology that's about to be released by an organization called Vera, which is one of uh, a select number of highly respected groups that as a independent third party nonprofit organization can issue methodology to support carbon financing. And they're about to release methodology that describes how to keep food in the human supply chain such that Brightly, my company, can now work with food rescue organizations as our customers and essentially quantify the methane emissions that they help avoid by diverting food away from a landfill over to a food bank to feed those people experiencing hunger. And we can quantify that in line with this methodology to create what are called carbon offset credits. And we will then work with corporate buyers who have their own ESG targets to be carbon neutral by a certain date. And while they may be working on their own internal policies to be to reduce their emissions, they might, may not be able to get there on their own or are choosing voluntarily now to purchase carbon offsets to be used as credits against their own emissions. So they'll buy Brightly credits from us for a certain fee, and then Brightly will turn around and transact and give the majority of the revenue back to the food rescue organizations so that those food rescue organizations can be less reliant on donations and ideally make more impact to rescue more food to feed more people. Cool idea. Holy cow. Yeah. There's no negative here, right? Like what, yeah, what's the what's the catch, Andy? What's I mean, it sounds fantastic. There there are people who've said that it sounds too good to be true. Um, yeah. A recent food rescue organization said, why don't you just put an ad out that says, you know, free money, click here. <laughs> because it's <laughs> there is part of what drew me to this so much is you know, sort of this mission alignment and sense of doing good and paying it forward and helping address food insecurity at the same time, helping to mitigate the climate change to the degree that we can. I have four young kids and I think about the world that they're going to inherit. So I, I felt very uh, driven to do something that was going to be meaningful. And everybody wins in this equation and that the food rescue organization should generate revenue for work they're already doing, but they have not been getting paid for. The corporations have their own ESG targets to address and they need uh, valuable and reliable and trustworthy solutions to offer that up to their constituents. And it should allow Brightly to develop a sustainable business model of its own uh, as everybody wins in this uh, two-sided marketplace. And more people get fed. More people get fed. Um, yeah. Really be hungry. Yeah. It, you know, I'm, as we're talking about the three companies that you've, you've started, it seems like every single one of them was rooted in purpose for you at that point in your life, right? So is that like your North Star, your purpose? It is. I, I go back to that book and Guy Kawasaki saying, make meaning. And uh, it wasn't about make money. And you got to believe that if you do the right thing, the money will follow. But it is about making meaning. And, you know, maybe it's just about telling yourself a story of why you're doing what you're doing. But uh, there really feels like there is a mission and a purpose to uh, what I have done. And that's probably the thread. And as, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, I feel great pride in being an entrepreneur and, I feel like it's a great privilege to choose to be an entrepreneur because many people don't want to be an entrepreneur and it might look cool from the outside and, and seem great. You know, there's a lot of nights I wake up in the middle of the night, nervous and anxious about, oh my God, am I going to make it? And is this going to work? And, you know, various things along the way, we, you know, could talk for hours on different challenges that I've had and issues that I've had to endure 
running businesses, having teams, having customers, having investors. It's not a walk in the park by any stretch. Um, but whether I love it or not, no, like no matter what, I'm, this is what my calling is. And I feel like it's just in my own DNA to want to be an entrepreneur, to start something and to, to take that leap and believe that I'm going to pick myself instead of trying to get picked for a company that I'll bet on me because playing it safe is actually risky. Yeah. Andy, you know, as we, as we start to wrap up, we always love to close the conversation with, you know, looking back, right? So we just went through your path, right? We, we, you, you took us through all the way from selling t-shirts to now offsetting carbon emissions. Like if, when you, now that we've ex had a chance to look at it, like if you were to do it all over again and somebody said, Hey, you can take the same path or you can go in a different direction and go somewhere else. Like, what would you do? What, yeah. I'm so curious. Um, thank you for all that. And I, I would do it exactly the same way with one caveat. Um, cause I've loved the whole experience. I love the, I've loved the varied nature of the things that I've done that, as you've pointed out wisely, you know, all aligned to the purpose and mission. Um, where I think I've failed though, was not paying enough attention to, uh, sort of the signs of your body because I, I have a condition called Crohn's disease and I nearly died at the end of 2018. Um, not so much from Crohn's, but because of a surgery I had to have that went badly and I went septic and I really almost died. I mean, it came very, very close to dying and that would have been tragic for a lot of reasons. Um, but you know, it's, I think that I just worked so hard and I felt this sense of responsibility to my wife and my kids to provide for them that I was just grinding it out all the time, 24 seven. And I was not terribly present with them as much as I could have been, uh, that they may or may not have realized. Um, but I certainly knew it and I was working to the bone to the point that it really made me quite sick. And I'm, uh, really fortunate to have survived, uh, on many levels, uh, to survive, but to recognize that you really have to have that, that balance. And I, people you say oh, about, you know, what do you think about work, family, work, life balance? And I just think it's, that's not real because I just show up and I work and I have a family and I'm, it's all together all once through. I never needed to have a work life and a personal life balance. Cause it was just all, I was so defined by my work that that was just who I was and that was my life. And I had an incredible wife and four incredible kids. And I'm so grateful to all of them and they love me and they cheer me on and they give me so much purpose. But I was so, I, I just think I needed to pay more attention to my own health and to exercise and meditate and be thoughtful about everything I do and make and say no to certain things instead of like working kind of all the time to really put in more balance in that regard. Um, and that's what I might do differently if I could do it again. But as far as the path itself, the choices I've made, um, I've been very blessed and really fortunate for what I've been able to accomplish with a lot of great people around me and a lot of great support from my family and my friends. Well, the good news is you can, there's nothing stopping you from finding that balance now, right? And it sounds like you're, you're working hard at it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Final question, Andy, where do you want people to find more about you or what you're doing? Uh, well, thanks. Well, my website, uh, the company's website is justbrightly.com. Uh, they can learn about uh, Brightly and that business there. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn professionally, uh, Andy Levitt. Perfect. Andy Levitt, thank you for coming on yeah. the pod today. It was really Thanks interesting learning yeah. about your story. Thanks for having me. It was a great to chat with you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host the Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.